Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I caught up with a group of South Korean researchers who were in Humanity Hub in The Hague, and they were presenting a report about human rights abuses in North Korea. Yeah, you mentioned it. They had made a database, talked to people who had been in prison and put evidence together that they found of crimes against humanity, of torture, of unfair imprisonment, enforced disappearance and inhumane conditions in detention, I believe. Yeah, the organization is called Korea Future and they specialized in human rights investigations. I found them interesting on a number of levels. First of all, the I mean, at least from my point of view, they look relatively young and uh, very, very committed, mainly women, which I thought was also interesting. And they're also clear about what they know about, what they are doing, you know, the documentation of human rights abuses, how to build up relationships with the survivor communities, how to document things uh, legitimately and clearly, what should be made public, what should what should not be made public. But they're also clear that they don't know an enormous amount yet about international criminal law. So here in The Hague, they were looking really to dialogue and to discuss accountability possibilities and, and really asking for advice. Yeah, for most of us, North Korea, we know about Kim Jong-un, we know about his crazy hair, the cult of personality, the nuclear threats, the meetings with Trump, the way that society is super tightly controlled. Sometimes we hear about famines, but we don't really hear so much about the human rights situation, except for that you can imagine what it's like in, in a in a totalitarian regime, but not in such specific details and really explained what actually happens there in in the penal system. Yeah, and here we have uh, researchers really just treating North Korea like any other repressive and shitty regime and just documenting the actual day-to-day reality of it, in this case prisons, uh, for ordinary people. I mean, these were not necessarily political prisoners. Okay, so let's hear this interview. I spoke to Haiju Kang, who's one of the co-directors of Korea Future, and to Shirley Lee, one of the investigators. Um, We were at Humanity Hub. It was a bit noisy that day, so apologise for any background noise. Haiju Kang starts off by summarising the findings of the report. The findings are based on 161 of the 259 in-person interviews that we conducted with survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators between March and November 2021. And we've been able to document um, 148 penal facilities, over 5,000 violations of international law, um, 798 detainees, and close to 600 perpetrators. And basically, our findings all contextualize how mass detention um, and penal violence are wielded across the North Korean penal system to all categories of detainees, not just political prisoners, as is customary belief, but also those who are charged with more common crimes, such as theft, assault, and those who are also charged with um, crimes for legitimate exercise of their freedom of movement. Wow, you've uh, really got all of those uh, figures at the tip of your tongue <laughs> and, uh, you know, well put together. Sounds like you've, this is quite recent that you've put all this uh, material together. Why did you decide that this should be a focus for your work? Well, we felt that there is not enough um, credible evidence to pursue accountability 
um, in the context of North Korean um, penal systems. And actually, we felt that um, North Korean penal systems is where a lot of the human rights violations are happening. Um, so that's why we, that's one of the reasons why we started this investigation. And I know it's um, not necessarily the nicest of questions, but are there some, any specific stories or specific examples that you think would, you know, beyond those figures and those big words that would enable yeah. people to understand exactly what you're talking about? Okay, well, um, we've documented, for instance, denial of health in, in most of the penal facilities. So I'll start with that violation. It's very common for the conditions um, within the cells to be extremely filthy, filled with lice. And there's an open toilet at the rear end of the cell, usually, where they must wash and also use a toilet. But also, because of the unsanitary conditions, diseases are rampant, but they're not provided medical care. So these were common occurrences that um, interviewees felt were just normal. They didn't identify them as violations initially, because they just felt that's the standard experience for everyone. And you also detail specifics on, on what we would call international crimes, things like torture. Within detention centers, for instance, run by Ministry of People's Security, which is now Ministry of Social Security, or Ministry of State Security. These are two state organizations that were most documented. Positional torture, which is the type of torture where someone has to sit or stand in a fixed position for prolonged periods, was very common as a form of discipline. So detainees who entered detention centers, which exist on the district, city, county, provincial, national level, so they're widespread, they had to um, sit for more than 12 hours, cross-legged a day, and if they moved or made any sound, then that would result in physical assault, so beating with fists, hands, and um, objects such as sticks, but also keychains, but also collective punishment. So if one detainee made a sound, then the detainees in all of this, in that, in ta- in that single cell, would have to do four squat jumps, for instance, or would have to, would be deprived of sleep. So another common type of form of torture was what we call crushing. So banging um, the heads of a particular detainee to the cell bars. So that was also a commonly documented type of torture. And you also document rape and sexual violence? Yes. So the most common type of sexual violence we documented happened in Ministry of State Security detention centers for people who were refouled. So they had to, um, usually people who are refouled, return with money and valuables in their private area, hidden in their private areas. So These are people who've returned from China. South, from China. Yes. Okay. So um, many North Koreans cross the border to China. And um, when they're repatriated, they usually return with money and hidden in their bodies. So they were many detainees who were refouled, experienced unlawful body cavity searches and strip searches. But we also documented other forms of sexual violence. So one testimony. One detainee told me that correctional officers who are basically guards who patrol and penalize and transport um, the detainees, uh, and usually in their 20s and male, were watching her and the other female detainees bathe in a stream close to holding center and laughing and finding that entertaining. And there were also many testimonies of 
specific young woman being taken out of the cell in the middle of the night. So in our database, we identified that as circumstantial evidence for rape or sexual violence because it's not something that was witnessed, but we have enough information about that type of behavior to assume that that's what's happening. What's different about what you've collected in comparison with um, what we've known previously? I mean, there has been a Commission of Inquiry, uh, 2014. So Mm -hmm. what's new? The recency of information, the evidence would be one aspect that's different and also the breadth, the detail with which we've investigated particular violations because the investigations, first of all, the COI interviewed 240 North Korean um, exiles, but we've interviewed 259 who had many who have escaped after 2014. But we we have more focused evidence and I think maybe Shirley can also add to that. Right. So in the North Korean prison database, in the NKPD, there's um, a focus on a legally structured form of questioning where we we take care specifically not to ask leading questions. We note, we don't say, were you tortured? We say, can you describe what happened? What did you go through? Um, And that's different from maybe some of the ways that that some other investigators might collect their, their information. I think because a lot of the work out there is sort of based on advocacy purposes, whereas the focus of our project from the start was not for the purposes of raising awareness or activism, but as as having a record that would be admissible in court one day. So we took care to consult with legal experts and to make sure that not only the questions were asked in in, in a suitable manner, but also to ask us look for those sorts of details that might not have been asked before, such as the perpetrators, smaller details such as the type of food they were given, sort of like what their cells looked like, what the facilities looked like, to really build a kind of a granular picture of of what's going on in the ground. And is it, I mean, it just must be in general difficult, I imagine, to to know anything about this really weird, they call it the hermit kingdom, you know, it's it's so cut off, etc. So how difficult is it to, I mean, it sounds like you've gathered an enormous amount of information, but surely it's really difficult, isn't it? It is extremely difficult. Well, as you said, North Korea is a closed state. So getting any information that can be verified from outside, from inside North Korea is extremely challenging. And also, no one from outside can go into North Korea to get the information. So most of our evidence is based on testimony, survivor and witness testimonies. And um, But even being able to reach out to these communities is challenging because you need a base of trust in order to actually broach this traumatic subject. And in, in the case of many North Koreans, they still have family members in in North Korea. So they're very careful about what they share with the public. And on top of that, many North Koreans have been approached for interviews and they're quite wary of that whole process of having to engage engage, um, in their own trauma. But fortunately, we work with a partner organization that is um, part of the North Korean diaspora in South Korea. So we already had that level of trust. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you deal with the re-traumatization aspect of things, because certainly from the media perspective, just very well aware that this is a huge issue. I mean, why should anyone ever talk to you when they they have to relive the details of their torture again? But, But you've 
managed to find ways through that. Mm -hmm. So I think having this partner organization was very fortunate because they were able to convince these people who um, had been formally detained to actually participate in in our investigation. Um, And we were able to ensure that the process, the collection, and the use of their information would be um, in a secure way. So we, we wouldn't do any use that information without consent. So if you look at our database, the public-facing side is um, redacted to make sure that um, identifying information isn't released. So those sorts of procedures, I think, also really helped gain trust. Now, in the report, you use specifically the term crimes against humanity, and you talk about um, the, the, the nature of that. It has to be widespread. It has to be systematic. Um, it's not just detentions. It's not just brutalization. Uh, it's not just about political enemies. It, it really is, you describe it as a crime against humanity. Are you sure? That's a phrase that was actually put forward by the Commission of Inquiry report for the crimes in North Korea in 2014, released then, and those that's the phrase used in that report, and we see in our investigations that the situation is pretty much unchanged since that report was released. In terms of, um, we see patterns, we see organisation in the way Penal facilities look the same. They have policies that work in the same way, such as arresting people who are exercising freedom of movement um, or using cell phones to communicate outside North Korea. We see that it is not rogue officers. It's not um, sort of gangs. These are people in uniform following orders who are trained to do what they do. And we've also been able to interview perpetrators who tell us about how things work in their organisation and sort of triangulating from many sources like documents, directives that people have smuggled out with them. So we have sort of a picture from victims, from perpetrators, from documents, from the words of party officials in North Korea, which which shows that, as according to the definition of crimes against humanity, that this attack against a civilian population is happening to implement a state policy to further a state organized policy. Well, can you explain a little bit more about, you know, how the, the, the state structure works then in that, in that sense? I mean, it, part of what I'm thinking from the outside is that it must be very difficult not to be implicated in the state. I mean, you have to take part because otherwise, you know, whatever, you don't get food or you'd be beaten or you'd be put in jail. So it's, it's a place where everybody's part of it. I think that raises very interesting philosophical and moral questions. Um, I'm, I know, for example, like with Nuremberg or with, um, we have these examples from history where we separate the state and the people. We say so-and-so is responsible, but what, where do you put the line? And of course, it's very different if you're pursuing criminal prosecution. You're not going to prosecute everyone. You're going to go, go for the leaders, the policymakers, the people who carried out the plans. Um, in the case of North Korea, as you say, I think it's, it's morally difficult because a lot of people who are victims themselves have family who are perpetrators and the other way around as well. And it's even built into the design of the system. For example, if you take a commander, you don't have that, that concept is almost unhelpful for North Korea because it's not a commander who gives orders. They sort of have a split command where there's 
a commander who carries out administrative orders, and then there's a political officer who vets and issues orders, and then there's an organizational officer who reports and issues orders. So there's sort of a tri-fold structure of command that impl- that always implicates more than one person. And part of the reason for this is they want to make sure people don't organize a protest, that people can't do a coup, that um, there can't be some commander which has loyal troops that will overthrow the, over the leader. So they have a very good system for ensuring that blame is spread out, essentially. Well, I, un- I think that's fascinating. And I understand that's talking about this kind of the middle level. How do you link that up? higher how what's the linkage to to is it to a party structure or to a military structure or or you know what what's the linkage upwards i think one of those things that's sort of been underexplored is because in the west we don't have single party states we have a military that is under civilian control or even when there is a military dictatorship a military is a stand alone institution whereas in a country like north korea and it's um, similar with um, china today and um, the soviet union in the past where a military is not a self-standing institution it is a party institution and all its officers are party members and a general is not the highest ranking person in the military it's the political bureau it is the same for the Ministry of State Security, the Ministry of People's Security. They're not standalone institutions. They are managed by party officials. So it's quite clear in the structure that the Korean Workers' Party is the source of power in, in what the military and paramilitary institutions are doing. Now, there is a um, special reporter, UN special reporter. I mean, it, it, you produce this report, there it is, you're asking other researchers to look at the, the data, etc. What 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 do you expect to happen to to your research? We're pretty agnostic about the accountability mechanism that we're going to take because at the moment what we're focusing on is gathering and presenting credible evidence that could be used. So you're not saying, let's create another tribunal? Not necessarily. That's not um, our priority. But with, you mentioned the UN Special Rapporteur. So in the last report, there was a focus on penal facilities, which which we felt was a positive move. And we definitely hope the new UN Special Rapporteur will also run with that focus. And one thing that has only been realized in terms of accountability is the UN Sole Field Office, the OHCHR, in terms of accountability. And we, we so, are... Sorry, that's the UN Human Rights Body has now their own office in open in Seoul. Yes, and we definitely want our evidence to push the international community to do more, um, to explore accountability that might be a level below ad hoc um, tribunals and ICC. So Magnitsky-style sanctions and, for instance, the global human rights um, sanction regime in the EU as well, these are, I guess, pathways that we can actually explore further for more immediate ways to signal and deter abuses. So trying to target specific individuals and prevent them from being able to travel, etc. And maybe even some more sanctions on, I I don't even know, does North Korea produce anything? But surely they need to import things. So sanctions on imports. Like travel bans and asset freezes on specific individuals who Um, have been identified as committing human rights violations. So we have a lot of crime-based evidence that identifies perpetrators 
who are um, lower level correctional officers, mid-level officers, and even though it wouldn't necessarily make sense to um, impose sanctions on those individuals who probably won't travel or have much asset in abroad, evidence, the crime-based evidence we've collected on those perpetrators can be used as evidence to target specific individuals that are linked to them at the higher level. And uh, is there a possibility, can you imagine, of seeing, say, somebody from North Korea being put on trial in Germany or somewhere like that? I mean, if anybody did to travel, is that what you were looking, looking towards? I think even with things like sanctions, the goal not necess- is not necessarily to be able to achieve that sort of level of accountability in terms of in-person trials, having someone go to jail for the actions, but to say to North Korean perpetrators that we know that these things are going on, that mm-hmm. these names are being recorded, the victims are being, their, their accounts are being archived, that it's not going to be erased. And we have seen through interviews that since the COI report in 2014, people are aware, the perpetrators themselves are aware that there is talk of this thing called human rights in outside and it is influencing how they act. Maybe it's lip service, but they do talk about we need to make sure it doesn't get reported. We need to make sure the beating's not too obvious. You know, there, there's we can we can see that people are being influenced by what is going on outside. And so we feel like maybe one day there may be justice in the form of a trial. But, but for now, the important thing is to preserve the evidence so that it doesn't get lost forever because unless it's recorded, if the victims die and the perpetrators die, it will, it will just be unknown because it's not like you can go in and film this or, or get the papers and photocopy them. Mm-hmm. So this is a way of sort of preserving evidence because it is to preserve evidence is to believe in the rule of law because otherwise it's as if it will never have happened. And just to add, even though we aren't necessarily focused on general advocacy, I think in the international community, when it comes to North Korea, there seems to be more of a bias towards discussing nuclear issues as opposed to human rights. So that's something we would like to address by by providing the evidence about North Korean human rights violations. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't get to ask you? Maybe it's worth adding to just the last bit you said that I think there's a tendency to think the nuclear issue is so important, we have to deal with this first before we can get to the human rights issue. But many people have already pointed out, and we believe too, that human rights should not be of a lesser priority than the nuclear issue because they are intermingled, they're intimately linked because it is the it's the suppression of human rights that allows that sort of absolute lack of transparency, the sort of impunity that allows them to pursue policies where missiles are prioritised over the well-being of, of the vulnerable. And it's also an issue which is sort of, it's a moral imperative to talk about human rights because you can't really have security without human security, without human rights. So. I don't know if you want to do this, but on the podcast, we um, we do sometimes ask people if they've got recommendations of um, stuff they've been reading, watching or listening to. You've listened to the podcast yourself. You know that we do that. So yeah. uh, anything you want to suggest? Well, I'm not done yet, but I'm reading Crying at H Mart by Michelle Zahner, who is 
an American musician, um, and she grieves over the loss of her mother, who's Korean. And she discusses a lot about her upbringing as, as an American with a Korean mother. So that's a memoir that I'm reading at the moment, and I think it's very moving, um, even for people who might not have any ties to the Korean culture. Well, I've recently finished reading a book called Ghost Boy by Martin Pistorius. It's a story of a boy who had some sort of virus and fell into a coma, and people thought he was brain dead. And he was indeed in a coma, but a few years later, by the time I think he was 15 or 16, he regained consciousness, and no one knew he had regained consciousness. So he was sort of stuck in this body with everyone treating him like he was not there, but he was there, he could listen, he could see what was going on. And until a nurse thought, hmm, maybe there's something here and got him checked out. And after many months of tests and trying to get through and you hear, and, and now he's done a master's degrees, he's married and has kids, um, has a fulfilling life and articulate, he can communicate now. And he couldn't so before. It's a true story. It's a true story. And it's, it's, it, it just really hit on so many levels that human impulse to communicate, to let someone else know what you're seeing and what you're experiencing. And of course, it's um, got uh, resonances with the North Korean situation as well, where um, you've got this barrier of, of communication. You can't hear, you can't speak. You don't think someone can hear what you say. And I guess sort of that's part of preserving the evidence is, is to say, yes, it's, you are being heard. So they had all these books prepared. I guess they're Haircuts fans. Yeah, that's right. They actually gobble up the podcast. Um, really keen to uh, hear how other countries are dealing with accountability issues. Um, but what did you think of the kind of line that accountability isn't necessarily their biggest focus yet, that they really do they're not necessarily looking for yet another tribunal, that they're really thinking about the issues of documentation at this point. I think it's really realistic in a way that uh, there are so many calls for tribunals for everything. And we know that those are expensive, take a long time and are complicated to set up, especially in this kind of situation where North Korea is still, uh, not, uh, you know, its own country and, and there's no regime change there. I think this idea that the most important thing is that this kind of documented for uh, posterity and that uh, if people want to know what's going on in North Korea, they can read it here, uh, is also very valuable and also uh, gives something to that the people they speak to, that they have the idea that their experience has actually been documented in a kind of comprehensive way in this database, which is also different than just kind of a report or talking to somebody else. It's something that's searchable and that will hopefully stay that way for years to come so that if something changes in the political situation and maybe there is a way for accountability in 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years from now, that database is still there. Well, I'm glad that you um, picked up on that and uh, enjoyed the interview in itself. I, I, I think it's really interesting to see how there's a different focus they have from maybe an older generation of human rights activists. And as you say, they're talking about the documentation first and then just explore possibilities uh, in the future. Yeah, that's our uh, 
podcast for today. Any others in the pipeline that we have? I think we have something coming up on Ukraine. I mean, we've always got something coming up on Ukraine. I hope that I'll be able to present some aggression interviews, as in, you know, what kind of a tribunal should we have on aggression? Yes, well, obviously, lots of uh, accountability interest is going on Ukraine, but we're also still looking at other subjects. It's just we're both really busy, but we are going to get to work and get more episodes to you soon. Thanks for listening. That's a promise. Bye. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.